0: Hey, everybody. It's late, but it's exactly as late as I said it would be, and that's a little victory in itself. I'm back, finally back in Mexico, and in the coming weeks, we're looking at a few things. Me pulling out the best short bits of audio from all the past shows and turning them into little videos that we can share. The idea being that it'll probably be easier to sell people on SFD by saying, Hey, listen to this four-minute clip versus, Hey, listen to this 15-hour series. It really heats up after hour nine. I'm going to get cracking on that Vietnam video, which it turns out there was no time for in Tennessee. My Jabelli and I will eventually line up our schedules enough to talk, but since she's reporting from the war-tornest parts of the war-torn world, I've got no room to complain. And I've got a wealth of paper books from the U.S. here with me now, and we shouldn't be too far out from our first episodes on Vietnam. The other thing I want to note is that starting sometime in mid to late November... I don't know what changed, I don't know if I changed the settings on my microphone, but I'm experiencing an incredible amount of echo and it's driving me insane. So if you've noticed that the sound quality of the show has declined, I've heard it too, and I don't know why it did it, and I'm trying as hard as I can to fix it. And I might end up just covering all of the walls of this room with uh, egg cartons, but I'm going to find what's happening and I'm going to fix it as soon as I can, so just bear with me on that front. I appreciate it. I'm excited for the new year and I hope you all are too. All the usuals apply. Check out the Patreon, and I'll be getting a video on there too so you can see my face talking at you about how you should subscribe to the show on Patreon. Which, by the way, hey, go subscribe to the show on Patreon. Rate the show on the thing you use to listen to it. That goes a long way towards helping more people hear SFD, and it's so, so, so easy, even if Apple makes it tougher than it ought to be on iTunes. And share the hell out of it on your phone, man. Click, click, tap, tap, and done and shared. Do it. Do it. Do it for me. As far as the episode itself, I've been mulling this one over for a long time, and I'm not sure I put a really fine point on the end of it, but the thing is interesting in itself, and it's another one of these intermediate shows where I'm working at the edges of something big, and it's going to take a couple to get down to the center of this particular Tootsie Pop. We're talking about land and capitalism and oppression. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism this is a pretty good land i'm not saying you never had it so good but that is a fact isn't it in iraq a dictator is building and hiding weapons and we will not allow it this is a different kind of war there are no marching armies or solemn declarations its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not, will not be televised Will not be televised Will not be televised Will not be televised The revolution will be no rerun, brothers The revolution will be live I want to talk to you folks this time around about food and capitalism and, in the fullness of time, some other stuff And you, faithful audience, might ask with reasonably good reason why in the hell we'd be talking about any of that on this show This is supposed to be a show about the failures of American foreign policy, and this is maybe a topic I should have addressed the first time I put out an SFD short and not the 15th or 18th or whatever this is. There are two answers to that there that I've never addressed, and now is as good a time as any since I can't go back in time. First is that I'm a dude with a pretty good brain and pretty good hands, and despite that, next to nobody pays me to write, so I've got to put the output somewhere. I could, as Dan Carlin does, sequester the short stuff into a separate podcast. And if you'd prefer that, seriously, write me. Because for me, it's just simpler and easier to smush them all together. But if that was audience opinion, I can totally separate them. If I've got a conservative listening public who somehow can't connect the sins of the past with the conservative politics of today, and who'd prefer that I kept my politics and my history separate, let me know. And I'll put a Chinese wall between them, because you guys know that I'm all about the bottom line. The other reason I felt comfortable visiting the SFD shorts on you is that, like a planetary body, the US draws all other matter towards it. Our faults and our sins, even if they are on their faces totally internal, totally domestic, sooner or later either affect or infect the rest of the world. So with all that said, let's get to the thesis statement of the episode, which is more or less that capitalism is bad. But well, that's a big claim, and maybe a little bit out of the blue. Don't get me wrong, I believe it, and once I finally figure out that grand unifying theory of American history that underlies all the shows we've done, the Vietnam shows will do, and all the other ones we'll never have time for, I think I might have all the evidence I need to make it foolproof. For now though, I've got to chip away at it in parts, and for the moment, for the purposes of this show, let me tell you a story about food. More specifically, let me tell you about bread. I got really into bread in the Peace Corps for the simple reason that outside of the state of Jalisco, where I live now, bread in Mexico is not great. It's puffy, sugary nonsense, and if you wanted anything worth eating, you had to make it yourself. And the thing that kind of unlocks the whole magic of bread making is when you decide you've got to have sourdough. Sourdough is a colony of yeasts, which are fungi, and acidic bacteria, living in a mix of flour and water. And just like the yeast that you buy from the store, you throw it into your dough and it makes it puff up. But the crazy, transcendent thing is how you make a sourdough culture. You just mix flour and water in equal parts for a few days, and then yeasts and bacteria is endemic to flour and endemic to the air around. You colonize the slurry, and just like that, it's frothy and gross and totally cool, and it smells like bread. Like sour, cheesy bread. Now, that process, building up a sourdough culture, is transcendent because it's behind literally all of civilization. We used to think, up until pretty recently, that man transitioned from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to agriculture because it was easier. Turns out that's probably wrong. It looks like the average hunter-gatherer was probably pretty healthy, and making it on something like 10 weekly hours of labor. Breaking your back year-round farming grain crops with all the benefit of sticks and crude stone tools was way harder than picking berries and murdering animals. It looks like grain crops were the motivation behind the transition to agriculture, but not for eating. For drinking. The flour plus water reaction is incredible in the first place because it makes booze, specifically beer, and it may be the reason that humans gave up what seems like an idyllic natural existence to develop written language, culture, religion, government, existential dread, oppression, genocide, and latterly, the internet. Once humans had settled down into growing their booze crop though, they were presented with a serious problem, which is that ground up wheat and other grain crops isn't really that good for the human body, and can't come close to comparing with the super-varied and seasonal diets of nomadic hunter-gatherers. And in fact, the transition from that life to what we call agricultural civilizations seems, in the fossil record, to be marked by an immediate decline in tooth and bone health, in life expectancy, in stature, in virtually every measurement we have for physical well-being. We also know from archaeological evidence that the Sumerians and the other hyper-ancient civilizations we've excavated, that what were probably pretty egalitarian tribal societies transitioned into regimented hierarchical theocracies, where a tiny priestly and royal elite participated in what we'd call culture, while the vast, vast majority of the population worked in backbreaking conditions day in and day out, until they died at the age of 14, or whatever, in order to support the society. Bread, in a very important way, changed that. You see, the complex of fungi and bacteria in a sourdough culture metabolizes all the stuff in wheat flour that's tough for humans to digest, converting it into more nutritious forms, while at the same time adding acids and vitamins that humans need to ward off scurvy and all sorts of other malnutrition. Bread doesn't actually ward off scurvy. I'm just trying to think of vitamin deficiencies. The chemical reactions that happen in the fermentation phase of sourdough or traditional bread making are either the miracle that allow for all subsequent culture or the tragedy that kept us from returning to an idyllic life out of the trees, but either way, they're key. Leaving aside whether that tradition was a good or a bad thing, bread makes all subsequent history possible. At least all Afro-Indian-European history, since the East Asians and the Latin Americans went with other more difficult grain crops. The real clutch thing about bread is that inasmuch as wheat is garbage without yeast, there are a whole series of special characteristics to the plant that make it especially high yield, with especially bad soil and conditions. Meaning that while pre agricultural societies might have lived healthier, they needed huge amounts of territory to do so. With wheat and sourdough to process it, you could sustain huge populations with relatively small areas under cultivation. That means cities, culture, civilization. And you know that phrase, man can't live on bread and water alone? That's actually biblical, not scientific, and it's referring to man's need for spirituality. It turns out man can almost literally live on bread and water alone, or at least can for quite a long time, or he could, until the late 1800s. The late 1800s is where capitalism, and in particular industrialized capitalism, really met food for the first time, and the results were immediately disastrous. The end of the 19th century is when we developed roller mills, which were the first ever method by which you could cheaply produce large quantities of white flour something that had until that point been largely restricted to the rich. And it turns out that that was a good thing because white flour and the bread that comes out of it will literally kill you. That might sound like an exaggeration or like I'm one of those gluten-free folks but in the 1890s it was entirely true. White flour has some advantages over the whole grain kind. That was, until just over a century ago, the only thing anybody really understood to be flour at all. For one thing, it's much easier to make into bread and quicker too. Likewise, While real whole grain flour spoils pretty quickly outside of refrigeration, white flour, as long as you keep the bugs out, is practically imperishable. The thing is, white flour has those advantages because as a food, it's almost entirely inert. This might be a really deep cut, but in the book Good Omens, which was written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, and which is, I think, becoming a movie right now, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are anthropomorphized and walking around. Famine, who operates out of New York, has developed a line of diet meals which look, smell, and taste like food, but which provide no nutrition whatsoever. And his clientele of models wastes away to nothing, even as they gorge on these meals. Like I said, deep cut. But a hundred and more years ago, that was white bread. The poorer you were, the larger a role that our grain staple, bread, played in your diet. And those poor folks who mostly subsisted on bread started dying of malnutrition in droves shortly after the debut of White flour. All the things that made whole wheat flour inconvenient were, it turns out, the things that made it life-sustaining. A grain of wheat has three parts. Bran, which is its protection, the hard bit. The germ, which is the bit that, if you plant it, will become the new wheat plant, which has proteins. And the endosperm, which is a bundle of starches that the plant will turn into sugar and use to grow as it sprouts. The bran is what makes wheat flour difficult to make into bread. After it's ground up, the bran's like a million little knives, and they literally cut through the strands of gluten protein that are what lets bread get stretchy and rise. And the germ is what makes whole wheat flour spoil. It's got fats and proteins that go rancid on the shelf. Together, the bran and the germ contain a bunch of fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, and everything else that, along with the compounds produced by the sourdough culture in the fermentation process, made bread into a food that could, with the help of water and a little bit of vitamin C from somewhere, could pretty much keep you alive indefinitely. And it turns out that if you take all that away, bread is very much like those diet meals from Famine in Good Omens, except that it'll make you fat even as you die from vitamin deficiencies. Now, this is the first time I'm going to talk about capitalism doing something, as if it were a person or an entity with agency, or as if there were some group of people running the show. It's not, and there isn't, but it's a convenient device, and what's interesting about capitalism is that it can produce these bad outcomes that seem like they would have been designed by some insidious cabal, but which are just the product of market forces. So, the response to this problem of malnutrition wasn't to go back to the flour milling and bread-making traditions that had done mankind right for the last 10,000 years or so. The cheapness and convenience of white flour were just too good to abandon. So, instead, we started fortifying the flour, trying to add back in some of what we'd taken out, Which is why, to this day, if you buy a bag of flour in the store, it'll have iron and niacin and a handful of other things thrown in with it. And none of that stuff makes flour particularly healthy, but it at least keeps the thing from killing you in the more obvious ways. The other big change that made bread into what it is today was the industrialization of production. The thing about real bread, made from whole flour and sourdough culture, is that it takes a long time to make. More than a day for each batch. What we discovered right around the same time or a little bit after we discovered how to make white flour is that if you separated out the most vigorous forms of yeast and left the bacteria out of the question entirely, and if you could inject enough extra gluten to double or treble or quadruple the quantity of the protein in your dough, then you could make bread from raw ingredients to finished product in barely more time than it took to bake it. And what I mean by that is there's a whole fermentation process in real bread and the baking is only an hour or so. And with this new method, you could make bread in like an hour and ten minutes. And with each one of these steps, not only were the poor losing more of this incredibly valuable food, they were also losing the ability to go back to where they had been. The transformation of the United States from a nation of human farmers into large-scale production farms with help from the rolling mills pushed those former farmers off the land and into the American factory. Outsourcing the production of sourdough to Fleischmann's Yeast Company, the production of the flour to Hammermill, and the production of even the bread itself to Wonder and all the other companies that got into the business all freed up valuable time for men and women at home. But it also, over time, erased those skills from the working class entirely. Growing, milling, and making our staple crop wheat into something that could keep you alive. It's an interesting fact that in Mexico, where I am finally, again, right now, when people in the countryside are just moving up out of poverty, they tend to get less healthy and when they fall back into the deepest penury, they often get healthier. It's because this country has a traditional diet that people in the countryside, at least, know how to process and prepare. If they make a little money, they can get their hands on Wonder Bread, known as bimbo bread down here, and Coca-Cola and the rest of our 1970s diet, and it ruins them. If they fall back down to where they can't purchase those products, corn and bean and squash do them right again. In the US, you'll notice that the poorer you get, the worse your health gets. There is no fallback traditional diet upon which the poor can depend. You just eat more of the plastic packaged and processed garbage that depending on your access to diabetes medication and dialysis kills you more or less quickly. Because it's literally impossible for the poor or the working class in the United States to go back now. I say literally because we've spent a hundred years selectively breeding our wheat for a small bran, a small germ, and a giant endosperm. That is that even if you grew and ground your own wheat in the US today, you'd still be eating garbage. Better garbage, but garbage all the same. So we've reached a point where bread, artisanally made, sourdough fermented with stone-ground ancient grains bread, this thing that used to be the most proletarian of all Western foods, is available only to the well-to-do. A point where to find even the most basic foodstuff of Indo-European civilization, you've got to go to a city like New York or San Francisco, and you've got to pay $15 for a loaf. And it turns out that I think this works as a kind of general principle of capitalism, that it takes something basic to life, something widely available and producible outside of the capitalist society, and it destroys that thing before reconstituting it, repackaging it, and making it available only to the comparatively rich at a very tidy profit. That's still kind of a big claim though, so let me tell you a bigger story. Not one about food, but about all foods down in Mexico. Mexico is in a position that sounds strange to us, but isn't really all that rare, in that you can find people farming and cooking the same diet in the same way that people were doing it a thousand years ago. If you expand your definitions a bit, for example, grinding corn with a hand-cranked mill versus a volcanic stone matate, you'll find that there are actually huge numbers of people, even comparatively modern people, with cell phones and cars and internet, growing and consuming, for the most part, an ancient diet. There are a couple of reasons. Mexico's climate is such that it's really easy to grow the milpa, the cross-planted mix of corn, beans, squash, chiles, and herbs, depending on where you are, practically everywhere in the country. Second, you can grow enough food to feed a family on what would seem to us to be a really small plot of land, and that's a function of the milpa itself. It's a cross-planting system. It doesn't take up that much room. Three, the traditional Mexican diet is delicious, and pretty much no one except the exceptionally westward-looking would find eating it even exclusively as a real hardship. Finally, Fourth, and most important for our purposes right now, while Mexico's big cities have been living an industrial and culturally European and cosmopolitan existence for centuries, the countryside is, in this generation, moving out of the kinds of traditional agricultural rhythms that have been in place since at least the conquest. I knew a lot of families up in the hills where the grandparents might speak mostly an indigenous language, rather than Spanish. The parents might have done a short stint in the US and then settled down to farming and haven't left the Sierra since, while the kids have phones newer than mine, haven't gotten even as close as gardening in terms of agriculture, and who will, as soon as they're able, get out to the city or the U.S. or whatever, as long as it's not the Mexican countryside. Now, whether that's good or bad, a lot of the drive that's pushing those kids out of the places their families have lived for hundreds of years is coming down from the U.S., It's a knowledge of the wider world that comes through American media, and more specifically a wider world of stuff that they'd like to buy, and the correlated idea that there might be no greater moral imperative than to earn wages and to use them to purchase and consume all of this stuff that you see other people purchasing and consuming. They want to be like us, in other words. In terms of food, like I mentioned a little bit ago, every step away from traditional culture tends to be a step in the wrong direction. That family I mentioned, With the benefit of modern medical care to take care of accidents, the grandparents tend to be the healthiest, and it comes down to diet. They've been eating a historically foolproofed mix of plants straight out of the ground for so long that they've got no desire to gum it up with new garbage from the north. The parents, though, are in general plagued with diabetes. It's the number one cause of death in Mexico, and Mexico's kids are the fattest in the world. That's in large part down to soda. Mexicans drink just under two cans per day per capita. But also to American candy, American wonder-style bread, and the invasion of heavily processed American-style snack food into corner stores and even the remotest villages in the country. Coca-Cola even went down to the South in the 50s and 60s and 70s and bribed traditional medicine men to make Coke part of their rituals. And if you head to Chiapas or Oaxaca today, you won't find a traditional ceremony anywhere without a big 3-liter bottle of Coke. What's incredible is that while the conversion of the average American poor person from, basically, a self-sufficient peasant into a total thrall of his capitalist society, where he's got to work all day to scrape together enough cash to purchase the foods that are slowly killing him, that took a long time in the US. Enough time that I think it must have been hard to perceive the changes as they were overtaking us. But I can see it happening before my eyes right now in Mexico. There are places up in the Sierra where if I were to walk up to a random little shack and knock on the door, which I've done when I've been lost or looking for a friend, the person inside will make me sit down and will, not only without asking, but without allowing me to pay them, serve me some of the best food I'll ever eat in this country, all of which has been grown and processed within yards of the house. And if I go back to Guadalajara, where I live now, nobody below an upper middle class income would be able to afford the exact same meal, with recently nixtamalized and hand-ground corn tortillas, locally sourced beans and squash, and chilies dried in wood smoke. I can't afford that here in Guadalajara. And not only can I not afford it, I'm pretty far away from being able to afford it. All of that is now, like bread in the United States, the sole domain of the urban well-to-do, even as it remains the diet endemic to the poorest parts of the countryside, specifically because it's the cheapest possible thing to produce. And what I'm seeing, day by day, as kids I knew up in the Sierra moved to the cities, is the knowledge needed to farm and process that diet dying out within the space of a generation, or a generation and a half. Now, the Mexicans themselves aren't unaware of this process, and there are organizations all over the country trying to resist the influx of GMO crops and industrialized ag, and working to preserve, at least in part, the traditional foodways of the people. One of the really interesting organizations I know about is called Maíz Mas Pequeño, and it's actually run by an American who moved down in the 1990s, married a Mexican woman, and moved into a remote little hill town. And what this guy Henry Miller and his wife Carmen are trying to do is reinterest Mexican people and especially Mexican young people in the food systems that are dying out up in the Sierra. But they don't come at it in the traditional hippie way that sometimes I might, where we're participating in what can become an inappropriate or even Kipling-esque fetishization of a culture we barely understand. No, Henry and Carmen want to make their little part of the region food sovereign, not dependent on the import of expertise agricultural additives or food itself from anywhere else. Why? Well, they've seen what happens to a rural community that loses the ability to produce its own food. The health of the population collapses. People suddenly need to be earning wages and the men leave, destroying family and community life. A new abundance of fiat currency and a lack of work now that agriculture is over with tends to lead to substance abuse. And once all this has taken hold and devalued community cohesion, Villages sell out, family by family, to the industrial and moneyed and government interests that have been taking the land out from under the average Mexican peasant since the Spaniards first hit the beaches. In other words, people move from a peasant poverty that we might find unappealing or appealing only in small doses, but which isn't inherently bad by any fair set of standards, into real, ugly poverty, characterized by bad health, malnutrition, hand-to-mouth earnings, alienation of work, rampant drug abuse, capitalist exploitation of labor in urban and industrial centers, and the loss of the family and community that make up the only reliable social safety net and the only strong grassroots political unit in Mexico. Which is to say that they stop being poor Mexicans and they become poor Americans, which I can with confidence say is worse. And if we want to look at an analogous situation in the United States, coming back to capitalism taking something that's both free and widespread, destroying it, reconstituting it, and then selling it back to only the wealthy, we can look at community itself. When I say community, it's one of those weak nonsense words, something you see in pamphlets or brochures or hippie tracts. But once you've seen it in action, community becomes something very hard, very perceptible and very desirable. Community is the way, for example, that Mexican extended families keep in touch with and support each other. My girlfriend's parents have done pretty well for themselves in terms of their immediate families, and they've ended up fostering half a dozen of their nieces and nephews when the need arose. Community is the difference between my girlfriend's grandmother still being alive and working and happy in her own home, helped out by family living on four sides of that home, versus my own grandparents and most grandparents in the U.S. moving into assisted living that's paid for by the family or the state. Community is the difference between a Mexican village fighting off corporate and state intrusion, or welcoming it in. The difference, you could say, between an American farming town sticking to farming or leasing all of the land to fracking companies. American capitalism wiped out what had been traditional community when it wiped out traditional farming and it's continually in the business of stamping out what community we can scrape together and selling it back to us. Retirement neighborhoods you have to buy into, assisted living homes, even membership gyms are all aspects of that, but there's one that I find particularly interesting. I've been thinking for a long time that we Americans are so enamored of our time in college because for most of us, it's the only time we'll ever experience a real community, one in which all members share common values, common goals, and most importantly, common work one in which we live cheek to cheek rather than behind yards and walls and fences, and one in which, before we separate out into our sterile apartments and our closed family lives, where we understand that it's right that we all treat each other as parts of one large unit with loyalty owed by each to each, even if that loyalty is expressed through fight songs and team t-shirts. Once we leave that community, which, remember, most of us paid a hell of a lot for already, some of us are so bereft that we'd pay to recreate it, A few real estate companies, and I've only heard of this in New York, but it could be everywhere, have capitalized on that impulse. They buy up a block worth of row houses, tear down the walls, and create adult dormitories for all the lonely graduates living in Manhattan. The company ranges for live-in RA alikes, for community meals, and for dorm activities. Everything you loved about college, produced, packaged, and delivered to you, as long as you're making money hand over fist. Of course, those real estate companies are pushing the families who lived in those brownstones out, destroying the actual, organic, and above all, free community that already existed in the neighborhood. Because if new grads could tap into that, they wouldn't need to pay a premium for the fake kind. And I think I'm finally ready to describe a general rule here that I'll defend, which is that capitalism, especially unrestrained, industrialized, late-stage capitalism of the kind that we have, creates institutions, structures, and situations which seem perfectly designed to oppress a population. That's the argument of the show. Bury in the lead here. What's more, the capitalist system does so all on its own, without the need for any diabolical cabal or secret council of Mr. Moneybag's lookalikes to be scheming behind the scenes. The complex of informational freedom and aspirational consumerism that, in Mexico, takes kids away from the land also creates exactly the kind of population that industry in Mexico needs one which abandons highly productive but industrially unfarmable land to highly unproductive but highly profitable cattle ranching, one which makes formerly self-sufficient peasant populations dependent on unreliable government programs and handouts and thus totally subject to government control, and one which causes those formerly rural, self-sufficient young people to crowd into the cities and sell their labor cheap just to stay alive, providing all the hands and wallets that a churning market needs to grow and grow and grow. While individuals can be and certainly do act in bad ways, nobody had to sit down and scheme up a way to make all of that happen. Capitalism, especially when nobody's setting up rules for and putting walls around the market, is really great at doing it all on its own. Capitalism, I think, is so successful because it makes us weigh up intangible versus tangible goods and choose between them. So land, unlike most of the things we want, has intrinsic value. It's worth something in itself. And that's because if you go back far enough on the supply chain, Land is still the very basis of society. Land is food. Which means, like Henry Miller and Carmen know, that land is also, in a certain intuitive sense, autonomy. It's freedom from the dictatorship of society. I, for example, am a pretty highly skilled and specialized human, and there's cool stuff that comes with that. But if I want to live, I have to go to society and beg it to give me money, and I haven't been too successful in that so far, so that I can turn that money into shelter and food. And unfortunately for me, I haven't yet found that part of society that values my particular mix of skills. And not being able to locate the part of the market that wants to pay me for my particular mix of skills is, especially in a society which values those higher dollar figures so much, a pretty crushing morale situation. But if you've got land and you can farm it well enough to feed yourself, you can give society a big old middle finger. Now, less intuitively to anyone who hasn't lived it or lived around it, land can also provide, through traditional community life, an entirely different value structure to capitalism. It's a structure that values family much more and stuff much less. And without having to get into interrogating whether or not it's better and why, we can just acknowledge that this alternative value structure exists. So imagine a traditional agricultural community, one that's even got access to culture, like those pueblos I used to know in Mexico. They've got food and space, as far as tangible goods, along with the treasured and limited possessions of old-time rural poverty— instruments, books, tools, animals, etc. Intangibles, though, they've got in spades— family, community, productive, unalienated work, and even more abstractly, better, healthier food, and a degree of political, societal, and economic autonomy. Then, bring in some capitalism, as currently constructed in the U.S., to this little community. The members of this pueblo are suddenly confronted with a whole bunch of garbage. Garbage that looks really good. Phones and clothes and cars and every other piece of the detritus that makes up most of our day-to-day activity. If this is happening in Mexico, moreover, darker-skinned folks in the compo are seeing beautiful, lily-white Americans or European-blooded Mexicans consuming and modeling this good-looking garbage on TV, in movies, in magazines, and in every part of the mass-produced culture that comes with mass-produced good-looking garbage. And the thing of it is, all of this tantalizing nonsense that looks so good to have Neither good food, nor family, nor community will suffice to buy it. The only way that you can lay hands on that garbage is with fiat currency, and over and over again, all over the world, one of two things happens. Your community, little by little, sells the land to get the cash to buy the garbage. And with every family that sells, all the intangibles of community life get a little less good. And the second thing that can happen, which is what is for the most part happening in the rural parts of Mexico that I know, is that you hold on to the land but you leave it for paid work elsewhere, thereby losing the skills you need to make the land valuable in itself. And eventually, the only intangible value left in the land is sentimental, and sentimental value has never stood up to the value of cool-looking garbage. And you sell the land. The fact is that while you and me, modern podcasting man, probably wouldn't want to live like them on a permanent basis, communities of quote-unquote poor folks the world over have been pretty happy farming without exposure to all our purchasable garbage, But you bring all that stuff in, and everyone's landless and diabetic with a house full of good-looking garbage before they're able to turn around and realize that they've been had. Now, I haven't forgotten either my thesis statement or about Henry Miller. It might make me sad or angry that capitalism is stamping out traditional culture everywhere with ruthless efficiency, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about oppression. And there's an interesting, larger knock-on effect to this food stuff, which is that soon enough there will never be any more Vietnams. I know, big jump. Inasmuch as we in the United States are big on prepper culture and stockpiling masses of guns and ammunition, not to mention the religious right's obsession with preparing for the, for them, hopefully impending end of days, the United States might have, out of every country in the world, the population that is the most capitalist and that is the least able or would be the least able to mount any kind of organized opposition to the government. Inasmuch as Alex Jones and some of the wackier evangelicals on TV keep selling their buckets of food and year's supplies of what have you, If the government tipped more into tyranny than it already has, the average American, and even the vast majority of those ardent anti-government conservatives, have no and would have no ability to do even the most basic of subsistence farming, or even the processing of that food, like the nixtamalization of corn, the grinding and fermentation of wheat into bread, that would allow them to survive having withdrawn from mainstream society. That means, in the first place, Noguería, no insurgencies, since those depend on a population able to survive away from government assistance or conventional lines of supply. But it also means a government that doesn't have very much to fear from the citizenry once it has decided, as it seems like Trump is getting closer and closer to deciding, that the voting voice of that citizenry can be safely ignored. And something interesting strikes me, which is that while conservatives in the U.S. seem to think that the most important thought the Founding Fathers had about a people's resistance to its government, they enshrined in the Second Amendment. What becomes more and more clear to me is that this, everything I've been talking about, was really a major factor in Jefferson's obsession with a democracy made up of human farmers. During the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese in the South taught us that giving a man a gun, even a great many of the very best guns, won't defend that man against an enemy that's more determined and organized, even if that enemy has no abundant supply of arms. And the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong in the South taught us, or should have taught us, that a population that knows how to feed itself is nearly impervious to force of arms, even ones as big and bright and numerous as ours. But all that's getting into the weeds, and at the same time maybe a little too specific an application of the general rule that I'm trying to get at. And hold on here, because I'm finally winding down and maybe getting to a more succinct point. What I wanted to contend is that capitalism, through market forces, all on its own, without the conscious coordination of any cabal or conspiracy, often can and often does restructure society in a way that makes it more oppressible, often without the necessity of actually oppressing it. Now, what I mean by that is, well, consider the situation I was talking about in Mexico. The Mexican Revolution in the second decade of the last century, at least the Zapatista part of it, was sparked by large landholders, backed by the state, trying to force poor villagers off of their land so that those large holders could make use of it. That theft of land sparked a revolution because the process was brutal, violent, and what's more, it had a face. The Hacendados, the large landholders taking the land, and the generals that were assisting them. Right now, an analogous process is underway in Mexico, but there's no one in control. There's no face to oppose. It's just consumerist desires and values pushing people out of the villages, and the corporations and its government partners that benefit from the process don't need to march into the pueblos and throw people bodily out. If you look at the US, and my generation specifically, you can see all sorts of processes, alongside the food stuff that's dominated this episode, that work to break down our ability to resist the government or the forces of society at large. In The 1960s, for example, a generation of students that were really less globally aware and less informed than millennial college students tend to be, managed to shut down universities, form communes, and even if it was all really a failure leading up to Reagan, they had the freedom and the ability to spit in the face of society for a little while. Students nowadays are burdened, as if intentionally, with tens of thousands of dollars of the only kind of debt you can't discharge in bankruptcy, and thereby funneled into as many low-paying jobs as they can get so that they can escape from their student loans before the federal government literally comes and hunts them down, as it has been doing since the mid-aughts. Nobody's joining any communes under those circumstances. It gets even subtler and even weirder, I think pretty much everyone in my audience would get on board with the idea that capitalism has been the chief architect of climate change, if unintentionally. And while guys like Robert Morris and really most of the public are confident that somehow the free market will get around to solving the problem, so far it's been impeding solutions and doing what it always does, finding profit in the disaster. Something that you folks might not have heard of is that lobbyists paid for by the insurance industry snuck a very interesting change into the Republican tax bill and what it did was take wildfires out of the standard list of destructive forces covered by homeowner's insurance. Why? Well, inasmuch as as American industry as a whole works to make Congress drag its feet on addressing any aspect of carbon reform, its actuaries are very much aware of the changes underway, and they're looking to squeeze cash out of a whole bunch of burned-out Californians who didn't have the time to do a line-by-line reading of the new law. Capitalism works to make us acquisitive, nervous, vulnerable, and utterly dependent. It has, by pumping too much carbon into the air and too much cash into our elected officials, put a torch to our environment and to our politics. The market may well have been the best tool for a time and in a place, but we're looking at a long and difficult century ahead of us as a country and a civilization. And if we're going to figure out where to go from here, we've got to start looking at the ways that the current system has undermined us as individuals, and as people within a larger society. The biggest problems are going to take the biggest changes, stuff that can only be implemented at state and federal levels, and that's going to take political organization on our parts. But we can also all work to put a little bit of a firewall between us and the state, between us and market structures. Work to build a few more ties between us and our fellow men outside of the strictures of imposed societal structures or monetary exchange. Look at all the ways you can't live on your own without heading down to the store. Bake some bread, guys. Plant some gardens spit in the face of society for just a little while.